So Acts chapter 23, page 1120 in the Pew Bibles. In fact, we'll read from the very end of Acts chapter 22, page uh, 1120, uh, verse 30. As we read, we remember that this is God's Word. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that it was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out to the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked him, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink uh, until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their requests. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. 
Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight, uh, provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows, and then we have the record of the letter, which tells of what's just taken place. Then we pick up the reading again in verse 31. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them, and during the night, uh, and brought him as far as uh, Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go with them when they entered the barracks, while they returned to the barracks. When, when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from, learning that he was from Cilicia. He said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Word. Well, do let's turn to uh, Acts chapter 23, page 1120 of the Pew Bibles. Uh, this is, as we said, an incredibly exciting uh, chapter of the Bible. It has disputes and assassination attempts and armed soldiers and so on. You could imagine it being a, a pretty good Netflix series. Uh, but Perhaps you read it and you think, what is its relevance uh, to my life? Well, let me begin by asking a question, and that is, how do you imagine God to be at work in your life? It's a big question, isn't it? How we answer that will, will shape how we approach our days and how we, how we get through our nights, how, how we rest at night. Uh, and we're going to see uh, how here in this chapter, God is at work in Paul's life. And I think it will encourage us as we realize that he's at work in our lives uh, too. And that's what we're really thinking about this morning, uh, God being at work. And let's remember that this is a book about God's work. Uh, look right at the start of this book, uh, the book of Acts, uh, begins by writing to Theophilus. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. We made that point whenever we began Acts some time ago. Luke's former book, of course, was his gospel, the gospel of Luke. <clears throat> and as he says this, he is implying that this book, Acts, is, is also an account of what Jesus is doing and teaching. Not, as it were, directly, but through his Holy Spirit, in and through the church. So, so this is a story about God being at work, working in and through the lives of His people. Now, we're late on in this book, chapter 23. We're going to finish it all being well before Easter. But we see here Paul having a, a series of difficulties, and especially a series of trials that will eventually lead him to be in Rome. Luke is, is charting how the good news of the gospel goes from just a handful of people to being established right at the very heart of the empire. Uh, God is at work. And in this chapter, God promises to be at work in Paul's situation. There's a key promise here uh, that we take note of. It's in verse 11 where, call, Paul, uh, where God comes and speaks to Paul. Maybe it's a dream or a vision or some special communication to him as he is praying. We don't really know, uh, but, but the message is clear. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. 
so you must also testify in Rome. God is saying, Paul, I, I know what is happening. I know the day that you've been through. I, I, I know what tomorrow brings. There are things that will most surely take place. You will go to Rome, and you will testify about me there. So, God is reassuring Paul that he is at work. And how does that look? Well, you, you, you might, uh, what might you imagine Paul's life to look like when God is at work? Well, the reality is possibly not as we might imagine, because what we're going to see this morning is that God is at work in challenge and adversity. That's our first point. And God is at work in ordinary ways. That's our, our second and pretty brief point. So, so God's at work in challenge and adversity, and He's at work in ordinary ways. First, first thing then, God's at work in challenge and adversity. <clears throat> in many ways, Paul's whole story, especially in Acts, is, is a story of challenge and adversity. But we, we see him having a particularly tough time in these verses. He has completed three missionary journeys, and then knowing what li lies ahead of him, he goes to Jerusalem. He, he's a bit like Jesus in this. He, he knows it is God's will for him to go there, even though it's going to mean suffering. And when he gets to Jerusalem, as, as you saw last week, he's arrested. He's eventually then sent to the, the Sanhedrin by the Roman uh, tribune or commander, the commander of the military garrison, who's a man called Claudius Lysias, because he doesn't know what to do with him, and he couldn't grasp the issues involved. And what we see in these chapters is, is that Paul is just getting passed from one body to another. Nobody really knows how to, to deal with him. I'm sure you've had the experience of trying to sort out some administrative problem, and you've been on the phone to half a dozen different departments, and they've passed you from one place to another. I remember one time I, I bought a in a moment of weakness, I bought a motorcycle off a friend, uh, but the motorcycle was in France, and, and uh, it, it, uh, it had, uh, its MOT had expired, and its tax had expired, and, and I spent, it was easier to get the bike home physically than to, to arrange all the paperwork. In fact, I'm not really sure it properly ever did, and, and uh, I got it home eventually somehow, but I spent days on, on the phone to different departments, and they, they passed me from one group to another, and, and Paul just didn't tick any of the boxes for Claudius Lysias. And so he, he ends up getting passed from one department to another to figure out what to do with him. And here we find him sort of constantly on hold as he's moving from one place to another. And he gets passed to the Sanhedrin at the beginning of this chapter. Sanhedrin, Jewish ruling council, made up of about 70 people, chaired by the high priest. It was sort of local government and religious authority all rolled into one. And like any political body, it had groups and factions within it, and especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he begins to speak to them in verse 1, brothers, I have lived my life before God <clears throat> in all good conscience up to this day. It's a good thing, isn't it? To have lived knowing that God knows and that we are seeking to be upright before him. And yet it doesn't get Paul very far, but it gets him a slap in the face uh, from on the orders of the high priest. And, and one wonders why. Particularly corrupt high priest this was, but did Paul's testimony to living a transparent life before God touch a nerve somehow? <clears throat> we, we, we must know that at some level, 
all who are running from God, maybe some of us who are listening today, all who are running from God, know that they are doing so, and they often hate it when someone makes them face up to that, even unintentionally. And, and Paul accuses them of being like a, a whitewashed wall. There's a great picture, sort of a, a polished, but, but, but crumbling. Uh, and uh, he doesn't realize that it was the high priest who hits him. Maybe that's because he's been away from Jerusalem for a while. Maybe it's because of an eyesight issue, as some people have suggested. But when he does realize, he sort of apologizes because he respects the office of the high priest, even if he doesn't particularly respect the individual who occupies it. And then he raises this very well thought through move, he, 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 realize, he raises the issue of the resurrection, which exposes this fault line right through the Sanhedrin. The, the Pharisees believed in an afterlife and a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. They were really materialists, and, and they, 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 they are quickly divided over Paul. And at, at points, the whole thing degenerates. At points, it feels as if he's going to be torn apart. And so, the, the commander steps in and gets him back to the barracks. And it's at that point that God steps in and Paul receives his vision, his word from the Lord, take courage, Paul. Now, why does God say this to him? Well, surely it's because Paul needs to hear it at this point, isn't it? He's, he's flesh and blood as we are. We don't see him just gliding uh, through all of his experiences and trials. He has fears as we do. He's almost been torn apart by a mob people he had once aspired to be like. And God knows that his man needs encouragement. And so he says, take courage, take, take heart. I know what you've just been through. I know what tomorrow holds. But there is a plan, Paul. You will go to Rome. God is at work. And you'd imagine he'd have slept a whole lot better after that. But, but how do you imagine his next days would go? Does he jump out of bed and rather than have to hunt for his slippers, his feet just, just hit them and everything works from there on in? Is that what it means to have God at work in your life? Smoothness? Well, let's read on. Verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Now, Paul doesn't know this yet. He's just getting his slippers on. But, but, but Luke is telling us this at this point so that we would understand what it looks like to have God promise him that he's at work in his life. It looks like, for Paul, more trouble. It looks like conspiracy and opposition. And sometimes I, I feel, you know, we say this sort of thing quite a lot. And I find myself thinking, oh, you know, I just, I just pointed that out recently. I don't need to say that again. And then I know this is just the sort of thing that I need to hear again and again, don't you? Week after week, we stumble into church having nearly been torn apart by the world and by our circumstances, perhaps. And we have that little whisper, that sulfurous whisper from the evil one that says, look at the difficulties you have faced in your life. Maybe God is against you. 
and then you hear again, and you see again here, that God being with us, and God saying to us, take courage, may well mean the challenges will not just not go away, but there might even be more of them rather than less. Take courage, Paul. We really need to learn again and again, don't we, that the place that we look to to be reassured of God's intentions for us and His love for us the place that we look to are not our circumstances, but His Word and the cross. We just need to learn that again and again. That's where we look. And this is all an expression of this Christian teaching that we call providence. Malcolm mentioned it as he prayed earlier. It's that truth that, that God continues to rule over His creation. It's, it's not that He sets this world in motion and then goes off and does something else, just checking in on it time from, to, from time to time. The way that we would, we would make a casserole and put it on the stove and then go off and do something else and just pop back in and stir it every now and again. There, there was a, a teaching like that, that, that God was like a, a watchmaker. He winds up the world like a watch. It just keeps ticking over without his intervention, but he's off doing something else. But that's not what we believe. God continues to work in his creation. God, Jesus says that of his father in John chapter 5. He says, my father is always at his work to this very day. Do you think of God like that? Always at his work. And I too, Jesus said, am working. God continues to be intimately involved in his creation. He upholds it and he governs it just as he brought this world into being personally and with full involvement, as it were. So he continues to be at work in this personal, involved way. Heidelberg Catechism puts this so well. Two questions that talk about providence. Here's the first one. It's on the screen. What do you understand by the providence of God? You know what a catechism is? It's, it's just something that is seeking to, to, to distill and to sum up the, the sweep of the Scriptures to say, this is how we understand God to be at work. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. It's easy, isn't it, to, to say God's at work when our lives are, as some of those little couplets say, are fruitful and healthy and rich. But this says, and the Bible says, that God is also at work where the years are barren and where there is sickness and where there is poverty. It all comes from his hand, and his hand is a fatherly hand to all his children. See, this helps us, doesn't it, with our days 
and with our nights. Indeed, actually, the catechism goes on to tell us uh, how it it helps us. Uh, Question 28 says, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be, it says, patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love, for all creatures are so completely in His hand and without, uh, that without His will they cannot so much as move. It's important, isn't it? It's intensely practical. Even in the, even in the little things, Katrina and I were away for a few days this week, and, and on the way home, our, our plane was delayed. You've, you've been in that situation, haven't you? How, how would this truth speak to my heart had I prepared it before I was in the airport? It would say that even Ryanair is governed by the Lord. And that I should see this as coming from His fatherly hand, that in this, this little adversity, that I can and should be patient because he is at work. It's intensely practical. What is it that you're, you're facing? I'm sure something much, much more significant than a delayed plane. God is at work in challenge and in adversity. There's a second thing. It's, it's much briefer. And that is that God is at work in ordinary ways. So, so Paul has promised that, that Paul, as God has promised, that Paul will get to Rome. And how does this happen? How, how is he preserved and taken to that end? Well, in the previous chapters, you'll know if you've read uh, through Acts or you've been with us as we've been going through this, that there are some remarkable miracles recorded in Paul's life. There are earthquakes that shake prisons. There are doors that open by themselves. There are angels that show up and guide them out of jail. God can do that. But that's not what happens here. The, the, the mob has taken an oath to kill Paul, and they're going to ambush him as he journeys again to the Sanhedrin. And remarkably, this little lad, his nephew, hears about it. He seems to be young, and we don't know how he hears. Was he playing in the streets and, and, and just overhears a conversation? Was his best friend's dad involved? And boasted about it as he explained why he was skipping tea. We, we, we don't know, but, but, he, but he hears and he goes to Paul, who as a Roman citizen had pretty good visitation rights, it seems. And, and Paul persuades the centurion to take him to the, to the commander. That's pretty remarkable too. The centurion is amenable to this proposal. And the commander is cooperative as well. He takes him by the hand and takes him off privately to hear what he has got to tell him. That's why you think he's a child. He's probably just a little chap. The commander takes him by the hand. And he tells him about this ambush, and the commander believes him. And he sends him on his way, telling him to keep it all secret. And Paul is then sent to Felix, the governor, up at the coast in Caesarea, with an armed detachment of something like 500 men. So the scholars say that the commander would have had a garrison in in, in Jerusalem of about 1,000 men at this time. And so half of the garrison escorts Paul to his next stop 
as God's plan works out. The plan to kill him is thwarted. Could God have used an angel? Of course he could. But what does he use? He uses a wee lad in the right place at the right time. He does the right thing. He uses an amenable centurion and commander. He uses soldiers who were just doing their job. He uses the the rule of law and the fact that Paul had rights as a Roman citizen. He uses very ordinary things to advance his purposes and see that his will is done. And you see, this is God governing all his creatures and all their actions, isn't it? It's, it's not just angels that are at God's disposal. It's, it's wee boys and, and centurions and commanders and soldiers and laws. It's all things. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. And something else. In the letter to the Romans, chapter 15, Paul writes this, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ. This is chapter 15 of Romans, verses 30 to 32. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So what else was happening? Well, the Romans were praying that God would be deli- that the Paul would be delivered and would come to them. So you see all the things that are going on, you know? Is it one thing? Well, there's lots of things, isn't there? God promises. A wee boy hears. A centurion agrees. A commander leads. A soldier obeys. God's people pray. God works in ordinary ways. Actually, they're not really ordinary ways, are they? They're extraordinary ways. But they're ordinary too. So, Christian, do you think that you're on your own? You're not. Do you think that God is not in control? He is. Do you think that what you do doesn't matter? No, 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 it does. Do you think that your prayers are worthwhile? They are. God's at work. So trust Him and live for Him and pray to Him and rest in Him. Let's pray.